0: Have you been a bit busy recently? Are you talking to me or to Hodge? I was, I was, I, Hodge. <laughs> Have I been a bit busy recently? Yes. It's been around the country like a blue-arsed fly.
1: One uh, or two plans and projects, and how did it go? Uh,
2: yeah, no, look, been uh, it's been having a lot of fun um, when I've not had COVID. Um, but apart from that, yeah, no, what? I assume you're talking about Centurions. Centurion, <laughs> I mean, I get the feeling
1: that... You're one of these people who's never happy unless he's got about three things on the go. So, you know, yes, let's talk about Centurions, let's talk about how it's gone, um, but also any other irons that you might have in the fire, any little ideas?
2: <laughs> well, there's always, I wouldn't say irons in the fire, but there's definitely always ideas being uh, being formulated, but uh, no, look, Centurions was a a crazy idea. Which was born from uh, Lucy from Tees, who we might all remember from a Race the Thames earlier this year, um, and it's an idea that, yeah, it, it happened, and didn't know what to expect. We set, we set, I guess, quite a, a su- substantial bar to climb over, and I would say we we managed to sort of climb up. To the poll a little bit. I wouldn't say we kind of got over the, the, uh, the bar, but it was, it was enough of, there was enough positive feedback from it to know we've found something that's, um, that's achieving a number of things, which is doing something different in the sport that people enjoy, um, focusing on clubs, which is what we need to do as a, as a community of rowers, I think we've got to bring life and, and give clubs a reason to open their doors and have a bit of fun. Um, it, it focused at inclusive rowing and helping clubs to see that as a measure of success. Um, it didn't do enough in terms of fundraising money. Um, we're going to have a look at that for next year. Um, but we feel like we've got a community of people, clubs who really genuinely do focus on inclusive rowing. And for me, you know, aside from my work at LYR, that's, that feels like a massive success. I feel like I'm connected better with those clubs and hopefully we'll start that journey of feeling like they're better connected together. So yeah, no, it was, it was an amazing day and, uh, Hey, to see people rowing a hundred K up and down the country in one day um was phenomenal um i mean that's a serious distance that's that's not everyone <laughs> anywhere out there is listening to this be like Woo-hoo! <laughs> um and i guess that's the thing i'm really proud of is now i've i feel like i fully transitioned from the athlete who put themselves in as much pain as possible to now the event organizer who creates things for others to put themselves in pain i'm like ascending that sort of uh (laughs) that hierarchy of uh, of rowing so uh
1: yeah can you tell us a little bit more about the inclusive side of things because it's such a clear goal for the project it does need like clear definition so people actually understand what you've gone out and done and like changing those mindsets
2: well that's the interesting thing so we went out to find a bunch of clubs which had inclusive rowing projects and inclusive rowing for us meant taking away barriers to entry from the sport and focusing it at communities that wouldn't consider the sport was for them or were held back because of those barriers so the first thing was cost. So the projects that we were fundraising for needed to to deliver rowing for free. Basically, a kid couldn't say, "Well, I can't afford fifty quid a month or whatever whatever the charges traditionally are." Uh, the second thing was that they then connect with schools in disadvantaged communities. So we were looking at uh, the communities that they were engaging with and how they were kind of motivating or bringing rowing to those kids. And then with those two main things in mind, you could, you could pretty much guarantee that those, or those, those clubs, those programs were going to make a big difference to who could reach the sport straight away. So that was, that was the main thing. Um, but what we didn't do was was, was more or less, we didn't teach them anything. We found those clubs. They were already had these ideas. They already had these structures in place and intent and the conversations usually went pretty well in terms of, you know, look, this is the idea. We want to fundraise, you know, tell us what project you've got. Can we work together and do something fun? And once we got through that conversation, you know, there was a few who tried. Um, probably with less success. We certainly had a few conversations that didn't go very far. But what we did do is find some real, really strong examples of of rowing clubs out there trying to make a difference. And the more established the club, obviously the bigger impact they could have. So, you know, Star in, in Bedford, Tyne United, uh, Warrington Youth Rowing, their link up with Agecroft, you know, what Leeds are trying to do this random guy in uh, in Coventry um Sam amazing kid we'll talk about him later you know Gloucester had a great stab at it it's you know what their intent are what their intent is is just genuine generally the core of what we want to see more of in the sport so my role in this is to kind of be able to build a small hill that we can all stand on top of as inclusive rowing champions and say, look what we're doing, you know, actually we are making a difference for this sport. Um, and hopefully, yeah, if that's one of the things I can use my gold medals to kind of, you know, attach to and shout about what these clubs are doing. And I include LYR in all this, of course, then that, that feels
1: like a big win. We, we, we're not sort of like the, the most flush with members at the moment. Is, is this a way that more clubs need to be looking at just bringing participation up, bringing more people to the door?
2: In a nutshell, yes, but it's not for every club to do. We need to look at the sport with an eye of diversity in itself. Every club shouldn't do everything. You know, there should be some yeah. clubs which are focused on performance. There should be some clubs which are focused on inclusion and opening the doors to as much of the sport as they can. There should be some clubs focused on juniors, some at seniors, you know, it's, it's it's not for every club to have this this sort of agenda pinned onto the front of their door. But I think it's important that enough of the clubs in this country do approach that agenda and do look at it seriously. There's, there's loads of opportunities for clubs to kind of have the confidence to, to make more of themselves in the capacity they want to. So yeah, I think in essence, yes, but it's, it's not for every club. Like Leander's always going to be a Leander, you know. It's going to be a rich, posh, elite <laughs> um, club, uh, you know. For for it's you know for for sort of as it would say, you know, elite rowers. It's it's never going to reach out to inner city kids, and that's great, you know. Leander's Leander, and there's a there's a there's a place for it. But equally, there's a number of clubs that have and that should have the support to, um, to drive inclusion um, and to be the champions of that and be recognised in equal measure against successful performance clubs like Leanders and Mouldies, et cetera, but on a different metric.
0: We had a chat with Axel Dickinson, who was the Hinxie coach recently, and he was talking about the, the different ethos or the different attitude they have towards sport in New Zealand where a lot of the clubs are actually um, community facing, outward facing clubs. There's a a big emphasis upon not just one sport, but on on multiple sports. And he identified when he'd been coaching over in the UK, there's a lot of class issues around rowing still, and there's a lot of barriers to entry. And there's also an emphasis upon, especially for younger people, this might tie in with your work at London Youth Rowing, in the UK, we focus very heavily upon ac- academic development. And he was talking about a 360 development of the individual in New Zealand. And sport is a, is a massive part of that. And people are encouraged to have a go, they're encouraged to do more than one sport. And it, it's sport for connection with community and development of skills, and also of individual personalities, as opposed to sport for exercise for a- a- aesthetic reasons. And I think Lewin will correct me if I'm wrong, but I think we've oh, we've lost a hideous amount of membership since Rio. It's
1: it's terrifying numbers, Rowing. So since the Active Lives survey was started, people saying it's it's not so much members, it's people who are prepared to say we did this in the last month. The number of people saying that about rowing has dropped about seventy-five thousand. And and that's, again, that's a little bit unfair because we're talking about the the pandemic and everything dropped in the pandemic. But I think we'd lost about 65,000 in the year before the pandemic struck. And I, I don't quite know how we get out of that as as a slump.
0: I guess the question is, is Andy, I mean, you've, you've talked about, you know, there are some clubs that are kind of high performance clubs and some clubs that will be community facing and, and they both need to be given equal weight. But a lot of the clubs that are now classing themselves as high performance kind of started as community based. Anyone can come down and rock up and have a go sort of clubs i mean agecroft is a is a is an hp club it, it has ambitions every year but it also has great learn to row and, and novice programs and i know <laughs> all about the historical foundations of leander and even though there are council estates in henley I, I very much doubt they're going to start taking ergs around to see if they can find you know very tall units who can move quickly <laughs> but but do we not need to almost reorientate or rejig or retool the, the ethos in this country so that more clubs are actually more welcoming and more kind of, open. yeah, no, you're right.
2: Look, No no club should be seen as closed door, certainly not closed door to everyone else, except a certain demographic or, or social type. And, and definitely clubs should go through their own evolution, you know, as they grow and develop, um, if they just opt for change, you know, different ambitions you know, there's got to be a, um, an ability to, to move through the, the types of rowing there is, um, that your number, that 75,000 drop, was that, was that rowers indoor rowing included? Was
1: it, um, Um, just water rowers? So that, that was just people who said, I have participated on the water rowing twice in the past four weeks.
2: Uh, well, you know, so for the on-water bit, um, aware of all the COVID situation, if we think about how torrid the winter was before COVID, you know, until we kind of got back on the water, was it really like in, in earnest a few months ago, it feels? Yeah, about March, April, I think we started. Yeah. Out. It felt like maybe not, a good year and a half anyway. You know, yeah. that, that winter of 19 was terrible. And then we went into lockdown. So, yeah, those numbers don't don't surprise me. I think... I think for the sport as a general, we, we're, we're just being replaced by sports that have moved and are more dynamic, they're more interesting to do or more interesting to watch. I'm not sure the price points a massive thing. I think it's certainly for the middle classes, most people who want to do it can, if you look at the juniors, that's obviously a very different situation, but in terms of the adult rowing, which I assume is where the bulk of those numbers are, uh, certainly where they're falling, I think we need to look at what 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 we're up against in terms of that wider market of sports, you know, why are they going to join a boat club for 500 quid a year when they could buy a decent road bike for two grand and ride it for four years, you know, it's the same price. Mm. Um, you don't get coaching on the bike, but you go out and flog yourself, you know, once a week, you go to a rowing club, you have to row four days a week. They might go to the gym. There's all sorts of things to consider. And I think. You know, seeing how quickly we're getting back to the the traditional regattas and the current racing structure, I think feels like home for us because regattas is the thing, right? But I'm not sure that regattas are helping us. I'm sure clubs have used to have waiting lists, but they don't have any more. You know, they're trying to get people back into the door and they want to get back up to their capacity, but they can't. The, the pool of people's had a bit of a, a, an opportunity to look outside and they have I think they may have discovered other things. And, you know, you look at what parkrun has done. I think, ironically, regattas are the original parkruns. You know, it, it's an event where tons of people turn up, everyone has a go, a lot of people get a medal. No one knows what's going on, so it's not fun to watch. But everyone has a good shot at it and everyone goes home happy. But it, it survives... You know, hands and mouth. Whereas Parkrun, because one basically organisation owns the whole lot, they can commercialise the shit out of it,
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: And it becomes this enormous, great, successful thing. Whereas each of our regattas is owned by a different club and it fundraises for that club, but it fundraises internally. It just tries to circulate rowing money within inside itself. Whereas Parkrun is bringing tons of money into the sport because they bring big sponsors that investment enables the sport to grow and we all know that rowing isn't commercial you know you know british rowing kenny bailey's been trying this for god it feels like a long time (laughs) and they can't they can't get a big sponsor so i think we've got to have a good look at actually what's the right formats for for the sport and i think we do have to have a good look at actually why how people are engaging or, and what what they find out of it that they could then
1: do otherwise. Obviously, I'm biased about the rowing machines, but I mean,
0: well, biased. You say biased, I say weird, but we can we can discuss that later.
1: Fair enough. But I mean, it, it, is that a way forward? Uh, I think British Rowing's been going nuts on the kind of um, on the indoor rowing front, um, and that seems like it's a way of like bringing people into the sport. It certainly certainly seemed as though. When I first got got into rowing, I got into rowing through rowing machines. And that was something around about 2002 four. I noticed a lot of people who started on the rowing machine on the old concept2 forum, sort of like the proto social media, <clears throat> who they started just knocking this up and down and they thought, you mean I can do this outdoors and actually go somewhere?
2: So we look, we, we, we're talking about this from perspective of memberships of British Rowing as the general measure of how many people there are in clubs. If we look at another model that's much bigger, you take Swift. Oh yeah. How many but... people who pay a lot of money to be on Swift become British Cycling members? You know how many step up to racing British Cycling events? I, there's probably a couple.
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: But. You know, they don't the whole model of indoor rowing is that you can buy a machine, you can do what you want when you want. And there's even a bit of a race platform on it. It's really simple. It's really easy and you don't need to belong to a governing body that you don't understand. And you know, there's, there's no way you an indoor row (laughs) you'd sign up to British, Rowing, And you don't need to belong to a club. That's the swift model that is. I think it is a, yes, it is a great way to, to get, um, people into the sport. It's why it's is the sort of the basis of the London New Throwing Model, you know, take, take indoor rowing to the kids, get them kind of hooked and then take them on the water. Um, the, the question is, you know, what should British rowing be doing about that? You know, should it be spending Tens, hundreds of thousands on indoor rowing programs. Probably not because who's listening to that messaging? It's club rowers. We yeah. generally already row. Yeah. No one who doesn't row is going to listen to British rowing. <laughs> they don't have that market. Concept two, yeah, they speak to gyms all the time. You know, they've got a brand, Hydro, they've got a brand. They're going crazy on indoor rowing as a as a market as a uh, way of enjoying and getting fit with their platform they're the companies who be, should, be, should be driving the indoor rowing platform british rowing should be focusing on on delivering more value for clubs because club you know rowing clubs is the bit that does need an ngp it yeah. needs that unity it needs the structure over it to help moderate it it's like the rfu for rugby clubs you know they if you didn't have an rfu <laughs> rugby clubs would be in be, you know, well, God knows what they'll just invent another RFU because that's what they need to operate. British rowing needs to focus on club rowing. Club rowing is on water rowing. You don't need, you don't need a club or British rowing for indoor rowing. So it has to be focused on, on water. And in my mind, British rowing is a, you know, rowing in this country is an amateur sport. So the NGB needs to be an amateur organization, not a pseudo professional, you know, um, amateur uh, organization that it's kind of pretending to be at the moment. So in terms of what what does Indoor Rowing give us and what should we do with it? Absolutely. It should be part of the culture and the, um, and the, the offering around Rowing and it should, speak to thousands and thousands of people who've never been near a boat but that's not you know we'll never get to those people (laughs) we need hydros we need i think is it peloton who had a rowing machine you can't you can't well the the, the beautiful thing about swift isn't it you can as you cycle through different pelotons you pick up the different people around you and you can race them and then they got all these sort of turbo things and you can kind of you can kind of have it. You can, it's being gamified.'m I would love there to be a rowing, a, game, a rowing game. I just I haven't figured
0: it out yet. I can't picture anything in my head. What something Eric. between a, a 30 minute rate 20 test and grand Theft auto. I like where you're going with this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly.
1: in the extensive in the extensive conversations I've had with this with people. Who are in that wonderful crossover be- between being gaming nerds computer nerds and have at some point rode the most important thing they said you can't let anyone kill anyone else <laughs> <laughs> because what happens is basically like about 10 users just dominate the entire game the grand theft Auto is a great idea but apparently if you get that kind of like ability to just sort of dominate, you just get these mega players that just destroy everything else, and nobody else gets looking, and everybody just stops playing.
0: Of having to roast somewhere within a certain time to collect something to unlock the next bit is quite interesting. I mean, I don't think you should be able to kill anyone, even even when Bow <laughs> isn't isn't tapping down properly. You should maybe just have a chat with them afterwards, <laughs> rather than take them behind the boat sheds and throttle them. But just coming back to what you were just saying, uh, Andy, the the need for British rowing to function in the same way as, as an RFU does, the conversation so far has, has hit on, on a few things that would need to be addressed. Uh, and I've just made some notes as, as we've been chatting. One of the key things about rowing, one of, the, one of maybe the barriers to entry that we don't think about because we're rowers and it's part of our lifestyle, so we're used to it, are the logistics of it. So you've pointed out you can spend couple of thousand on a bike and it will last you then, you know, the same length of time as your, as your membership from rowing, but you can just jump on a bike and go at any time. You know, if, if there's a park run on a Saturday morning, it's usually about 5k. So you can probably do it in like 20 or 30 minutes and then go and have a cup of, a cup of coffee with the family. If, even if you're just going down to the local club, for one outing for a paddle, it's half a day, you know, you, you're leaving the house at seven, half seven, get there at eight o'clock. Someone's late, a blade is missing. We need to do a rigger. And then you get on the water and then you do, and then it's 11 o'clock and then it's, it's half a day gone just for a paddle. How do we address the logistic? I mean, even going to a regatta is a logistical challenge. Cause you've got to rock up a few days beforehand, which boats are going derig rig them, where's the trailer, who's driving, you know, all of that stuff. That's one of the, that's one of the things we embrace because it's part of our culture, but for people who aren't used to it, it's like, well, that's a whole day for a 90 minute paddle. Well, so you just, you, again, I you just use the
2: comparisons, right? So look at rugby, you go to, if, if you play for the fifth team, so my, my experience is back up in Wharfdale in Yorkshire. My dad used to manage the fifth team. Bunch of, you know, builders, workers, they weren't rich, upper class, middle class, they're all. Working, they spent their Saturday mornings and a good chunk of Saturday afternoon playing rugby, having a load of fun, having a few beers in in the in the clubhouse, and going home. They all paid their subs. It was a membership structure, exactly the same as Rome, and they would do that every weekend through the season. You know, Mm. they would home away matches. You know, they (laughs) they used to. There was a guy called I think Mick Greenwood he was the local builder and he had this massive old Bedford, um, truck, uh, with a sort of a crane arm in it. And the fifth team's pitch was on the other side of the valley, which meant they had to drive around to go and get there. And, you know, they've had, they had a, a ton of people in the back of his truck, you know, with boots and, um, boots and rugby gear on and big thick jackets. Cause it was obviously the middle of winter and You know, there's nothing flashy. There's no reason to do it other than they just liked to do the sport. Mm. And, you know, just having a quick look, there's, there's 2000 rugby clubs in this country, in England, sorry. And there is 138,000 registered rugby players. Now what we got about 500 rugby clubs, 30,000 members, Mm. you know, We've that we our sport doesn't have any excuses to say that it's too difficult to be part of. You know, we've just got to ask our questions. Why would people rather spend all that time playing rugby and not all that time rowing? You know, what, yeah. what's the you know And there's a part of it. Look, there's a it's a it's it's a lot easier logistically to set up a rugby club on a bit of grass. It's a lot harder to find a rowing club on a bit of water, the right bit of water, etc. So there's obvious challenges above, uh, rugby, but there's still that bit of, uh, we, we've got to find the solution to bring, to enable this sport to come alive. Um, and I go back to those regattas. I they, you know, they, they're great little things, fantastic. I don't, you know, not knocking them for anything serious, but the bit, <laughs> the bit that where the sport comes alive is held behind closed doors in training agendas. And that's, that's the bit I think we're missing out on actually elevating what we do a lot, actually. Uh, and we, we never put it on a platform where it can actually gain real traction.
0: This is something I wanted to kind of pick on, up on from our first conversation, which was obviously a long, long time ago, about, about four lockdowns <laughs> ago, uh, when we were all younger, fitter and hadn't had COVID yet. Have you actually had COVID yet, Lewin? No. Right, stay L- well away. Literally I've
1: dodged it. I've no idea how.
0: There's there's no justice in this world. <laughs> we touched on last time, uh, you know, and again you talk about the rugby club and last time we mentioned the difference between participation sports and performance sports. This is very much wondering out loud if to a certain extent rowing has become a victim of its own success over the last couple of decades because we and you've been a massive part of that success in terms of on the rowing lakes of the world in Olympiads and world championships. Some people will argue that British cycling are the most successful sport, but we, you, we so far touch wood, don't have the baggage that they've managed to generate. I think we are the most <laughs> successful British Olympic sport. We've done fantastically well. Our program has been great, but we are high performance and that's filtered down into, in, into clubs. We've talked about some clubs are, are HP, like the Leanders are of this world, and some clubs might be more, more community-facing, like the Tyne United's of this world. So we talked to Rory Copus, who was at Oxford Brooks, and I'm paraphrasing, didn't quite put it as bluntly as this, but it's basically, if you don't have these ERG scores and you want to row at university, then don't come to Oxford Brooks. I'm bringing this up because, and I think Loon will back me up, we got a lot of rowers at Agecroft who learned to row at their university and they didn't necessarily pull up trees there. So I'm thinking of people like Ali Chapman who was our captain of of our eight, uh, Sean who went on to be club captain of Agecroft and's got I mean he's got Henley's under his belt. Mark Hancock rode at Cambridge and but they didn't do anything great at, at uni. But then they went on to be club the backbone of the club and kept the club going for years and years and years. And universities are are selling academic courses on the strength of their rowing program. So we we've got Newcastle and Durham up at Tyne. Uh, You know, and if Fergus is listening, you know, we've had a few chats. They're they're great people. The coaches are great. But it's come to us, study at at Newcastle, study at Durham, row at Henley. This is kind of what we do. But by making even things like uni courses, and I know that I think you started at staffs, by making them so hyper-selective, you're cutting off a pipeline of, of people who might go to university and try a bit of rugby and try a bit of climbing and then find rowing. And maybe not do much, but just enjoy the social and the training and the crack. And then, you know, like, um, a lot of people stay in Manchester, because it's a big, a big catchment. A lot of people stay in Newcastle. It's a great post university catchment area. They then might go on to be the next 10 years of organizing the committee and checking the fleet and making sure the launch has got petrol for their local club. But if you say, no, you can't come because you're not fast enough. That's, that's almost that high performance rowing is all about high performance and about performance, not participation. That's the culture we have to change. Would that be a fair?
2: Yeah, no, I agree completely. Um, I, I say, I mean, on, on the Brooks sort of perspective, Brooks is currently the biggest feeder for the Olympic team. You know, it's absolutely smashing it and it should not change, you know, if we ideally need about three or four more brookses to be kicking the bells out of each other, to make sure that those who do want to do that, have all the opportunity they need to excel and get to the very peak, because that's what they want to do. You know, there has to be a specific, there has to be a group of specific programs that do that. However, I'd argue if you go to the Bucks regatta or the Bucks head, you'll see thousands and thousands of, of rowers who actually almost well they got into it because they were probably offered a free pizza. They were sort of, come on, you'll be fun, You know, you'll be a load of laughs and they'll, they'll whinge and they'll miss sessions and actually, you know, they'll do it once a week and then they'll turn up a box regatta and from one side, they'll have a great time because It's, it's an experience they've never done before. But on the other side, they'll get laughed at by their own community because it's not performance. They're all a bunch of look at them. They're so shit, you know, we'll look down on them for that. And that because it's because they're kind of in this one size fits all regatta thing, you know, Hmm. it is, it's, it's, it's a performance way of selecting people who's best and who's not. For a lot of these athletes, whether it's club or, or, or student based, who cares, you know, really, you know, it, 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 it's, we need to focus on the experience of, of them, you know, trying to achieve something. And I think our events need to diversify hugely to actually get more out of the community we have. Mm. So you're right. the, we kind of need a culture change, but it's not like a stick. We have, we've got to change. What we've got to do is to create more fun events, which will highlight a different side of rowing. So see it as a carrot, mm. you know, it, it's kind of what we tried to do with, well, there's a number of fun events, which are starting to pop up and it's really awesome to see the one, my touch base is the, Regatta London. You know, it was a row through the center of town. We'd close the river off huge challenge to do but anyway but the idea was that you go from one to the one end to the other and you're like, Oh my God, look at what we've just done. And, you know, you put in a few bursts and you sort of, you try your your hardest and, but no one's watching the technique. No one's sort of, maybe some people will be, you know, measuring between, Oh, you know, we beat you by half a second. But for the majority of the rowers, it, it would have been about the experience. Now, That's one big part of it where we could go as a sport. And then the other side of it just goes back to, you know, why does, why do the fifth team, Wharfdale team enjoy playing rugby when when they go and play, they don't get laughed at by the first team for playing shit rugby. Yeah. They get get cheered off the pitch because they're wearing their shirts. You know, they get celebrated by the other team. You get clapped off the pitch and there's respect and all of that. And I think we, we, I think we, we, we do have a, a lot to learn as a sport from from things like rugby. Yeah, again, I think it goes back to that competition structure. Yeah. I just I just don't think I don't think regattas are really helping us see the the value of the sport, which means others don't see the value of the sport, which means we're we're holding ourselves back and we're being by standing still we're being overtaken by more and more sports.
0: Yeah. I think you're being very tactful about it, but I think um, what we need to acknowledge and, and really foreground and maybe have driven from the bottom up and also from British rowing down, that, that there is room within the sport to have that the high performance aspirational Watch your 2k time, you know, look at the way they're squaring and, and feathering stuff, which which goes on a lot. And we've all, you know, I we've all heard some very pointed comments about that technique at one time or, or another. <laughs> L- Lewin's actually usually heard them from me in the same boat if I've been sitting behind him, but he <laughs> can't turn around and hit me then. But we also need to acknowledge the spirit of the fifth team and just, well, we're doing this because we like it and we, we like being on the water with our mates and having a bit of fun and then go and have a bit of cake afterwards. There's room for performance and participation. It doesn't have to be mutually exclusive.
1: Yeah. i a bit of an idea.
0: Lewin, you do know that no one at British rowing actually listens to us anymore.
1: Okay, <laughs> fair enough. Yeah, we, we, we've said enough um, that they turned us off or blocked us or whatever it is. You know, when I watch bu- Bumps, normally you're watching like the crash videos on YouTube and you just wince and you just like think, oh my God, like, how did they live? But is it stuff like Bumps? Is it stuff that is just can capture the imagination of an entire town to a point where you will get people in a pub saying, yeah, I reckon we can do that. I reckon we can not come last if we do three months training. Yeah,
2: Yeah, I think so. I think, um, I'm sure there's somewhere which does have like a, a a pub relationship. Um, and there is, there is, um, yeah, like the pub eights. I'm sure, I think I'm tempted to say even Molesy had something like that at one point. But um, hey, I was down on the Scillies, uh for our holiday and their principal sport is rowing. They don't have football pitches. They don't have rugby pitches. They all have boats, pilot gigs, because that's what 200 years ago, fastest pilot gig who could get to the salvage would get it. Or the fastest pilot gig who could get to the boat and put their pilot on board got the money. You know it was a performance sport back then and they maintained it and it's um uh i was lucky enough to be invited to to actually go out in one of the boats uh, and row it and that that is a treat if anyone gets to have a go in a pilot gig uh, prepare yourself because it is crazy (laughs) Um, but um but yeah no they and they go out every once a week and they do all these random uh, courses around the, uh, the sort of five main islands they have there. Um, but it's pretty much based around the pubs, right. You know, yeah. they, yeah. um, uh, yeah, it, it's a fantastic feel. It's 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 it, it, they don't have training programs. I mean, I felt, I did one training session with them, which involved going out due south for about a mile and a bit as hard as you could go. We got to a boy, we stopped, we turned like Southwest. And then we went really hard for about half a mile. <laughs> and then we turned and went sort of due North back to where he came from. for what was probably about two miles and just went really hard. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was brutal. It was, it was brilliant. Um, there, there wasn't much finesse going on. It was, it was about punishing the demons within. <laughs> and, um, yeah, it, 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 when we actually went out for the race, there were like, there were, there were boats watching some tourist boats, some, you know, locals who just wanted to see if, you know, Somebody fell in. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was, yeah, it was, it was really interesting. Um, But what you saw was a really strong community of rowing clubs Mm. held together, obviously because of their location, but working kind of together and having a really great, obviously respect for each other. They enjoyed it. They would, they all kind of knew who they were. Um, but it wasn't an, it wasn't a national sort of level engagement. It was clubs racing their, their clubs It's like you know, Molesy racing Kingston and Walton and Weybridge on a regular basis.
1: And do you reckon that's the way forward, bring in a kind of like a local feel to it?
2: I think that's that's a big part of it. I think, you know, we've got to find a way to bring our clubs back to life. Um, you go down to a rugby club and well, if, if there's a home game, the place is thriving. Obviously watching rugby match versus watching rowing, if you want to watch a rowing race, you've got to go somewhere to go and watch a regatta and you're going to be there all day and not know who you're watching until you finally realize the crew you came to watch race 10 minutes ago. If you go to watch a rugby match, you know, they're going to be on at 1230 and you know, you can have a pint afterwards and you're going to go to the clubhouse and meet up with half a dozen people that you meet on a regular basis. It's a completely different agenda for watching the sport. And I think kind of rowing has got to figure out how to harness, um, harness the power, the, 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 the the capital value of our clubhouses again, Mm. you know, and we, we're, you know, clubs are trying to do all sorts of things with caps and yoga and different things. And it's it's all kind of irrelevant of rowing. We we've got a really powerful sport, as in culturally the value it has with life skills, what it does to people, and how it benefits them. We do have a sport which is watchable as well, and yeah. we we know the model. It's the boat race. Mm. T- hundreds of thousands, millions of people watch it, you know. And yeah, okay. call it Oxford and Cambridge, whatever you like. It's not Oxford and Cambridge play rugby as well, but not as many people watch for that as they do rowing. Mm. You, you watch rowing there because it's, it, you, you certainly see a sport you might recognize, but you see it in a, in a whole new light, you see it for like the intrigue and what could go wrong. And this, this whole life, which we've extinguished from the sport on the main part, all the way from Olympics. All the way down. I mean, look, they're even trying to do it with the boat race. You know, if the blades come a little bit close, oh, you know, <laughs> come on. <laughs> you know, it's it's it, it's sort of this this performance agenda is going too far. We need to rein it back, have a bit of fun. And that's why I love bumps racing. And I saw it the other day, a clip came up, I don't know where I saw it, was it on YouTube or Twitter or something? And there was just an eight piling into another eight, and the bow snapped off and you know and then two minutes later i was watching a cycling crash you know a peloton went down some guy hit the deck bikes all over the place <clears throat> just like oh you know really god that must have hurt but are you damn i'm going to watch this again and it's not going to make me think twice about getting back on a bike you know yeah <laughs> you no know, I, I i i i've got to make sure people don't drown obviously um but we've also got to be adults about the risks we take and, and the life, uh, rugby's going through the similar thing, you know, people should be wearing head guards, yeah. you know, that modern standard of safety. That's a good call. you know. Boxing, <laughs> what are they? I, I don't know. You look, there's a, there's a big debate on this, but, um, a, he- a healthy sport balances a lot of different things. Um. And at the moment. We don't balance much. We, we just go performance,
0: performance, performance. This is a bit of kind of shifting tack. Jürgen's gone to France. You (laughs) must be doing handstands in the corner about that.
2: (laughs) I, yeah, look, I, I knew that was coming. I've, I've been obviously speaking to him a fair bit, not fair bit, a little bit. Um, you know, he's, he's got a love for the sport. He's, he just, he's not ready to give it up yet. He's you know, he still has a twinkle in his eye. I mean, you just, it's the same twinkle. I kind of saw when he sat me down at Boston um, and said, and back in 2005, and he said to me, okay, Andy, I need you for, I need you for the four. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm up for that. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, you know, it's.
0: We don't want to get you in trouble. You're doing wonderful work with London Youth Rowing and you are a huge part of British Rowing's success, but it just seems like such a dropping of the ball. Probably the greatest high performance coach in history and we've let him go. And now he's gone to France because he obviously still wants to do it. I think there, you know, everyone understands, I'm sure everybody who's listening here
2: has seen what's been going on and probably has seen my tweets and things. It's, you know, the decisions that were made. The strategy, I'm sorry, the decisions that were made and the strategies put in place that I will say that were supported by the board. So we're not just talking about the performance side, but it goes right to the top of British rowing. The people we elect to be, uh, to represent the membership, you know, they endorsed it. They gave a the go ahead. You know, the this, this structure Brendan put in place for Jürgen to be, whatever happened there. It, it was it was foolish at the time, and it, it's only it's only more apparent how foolish it was. I think, and I think uh, I'll go as far as saying that when when we started hiring the CEOs for British Rowing, so who was it? Di Ellis, Anna Marie Phelps. When they were putting in place the first CEOs, they did it with with one thing in mind, which was we 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 don't want a rower. We need to find. We need to find the next thing from outside of the sport, And at the time I was like, I kind of understand where you're going with this, but it's not right. Like you got the, the person at the top absolutely has to understand the sport. And you want to find the person who understands more of the sport than anybody else who's got an inspiring sort of personality who is motivated and passionate who is responsible and caring and, and, and compassionate, but they have to understand rowing. They need advisors who are outside of the sport who can give this perspective of, well, actually, we do it like this in rugby and football, and, you know, then that person can understand that thing. Actually, that's a good idea because it could fit in this and this and this. So anyway, they went down this line of saying, well, we, we don't want rowers. And that, that mindset has persisted. And when they hired Andy Parkinson, they hired him because he wasn't, well, one of the things, well, he wasn't a rower. When he hired Brendan Purcell, oh, he's not a rower. So he's going to be brilliant. You know, when they hired their director, Helen and what's his face, Kenny, you know, non-rowers, you know, the, the, the whole thing <laughs> on top of British rowing was non-rowing and lo and behold, all the decisions they made didn't have any rowing understanding and okay. it's all falling down it's i mean it is tragic because we are in a very very precarious situation as a sport you know we have a general public who still don't get what the value of rowing he don't engage with it because it's not a sport for them okay you know that's that that's a, this, it's a vocal minority you then have a um a, a a principal funder in UK sport and Sport England who I think I think Sport England's a bit different because they see what we're certainly what stuff we're doing like an LYR. But for UK sport, the pressure they're under to <laughs> to be like, why so much money for rowing? You know, they're kind of looking for any opportunity, I think.
1: Well, I mean, but, kind of something's already
2: going down, isn't it? And, and then I think it's going to go down again with the amount of chaos that British Reign's going through at the moment. Yeah. And, you know, from a governance perspective, it's very hard to endorse what's going on. I mean, to have or to, 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 to move on three key directors, including your CEO, in the matter of a month is not a good position to be in. <laughs> you know there's going to be alarm bells going off all over the place if you're giving that organization millions mm. so you know there's a lot um there's a lot at stake and i think i think the board need to have a good look at, at, at what's happening because they're, they're the only ones left um and i'm i'm not sure and you know, because they're the ones who have made all these decisions to this point, they haven't, they haven't really, in my opinion, exercised their duty to to provide proper governance over the strategies that have been put in place and the decisions that have been made. I just don't know what what they're going to do next. And the problem is, what they're going to do next is hire someone for the next eight years.
1: Are, are they going to learn from experience? That, 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 that's the, the key thing. Are, are they going to look at, so, well, we tried that and that didn't really work. Maybe let's try something different.
2: I think they will try something
0: different. I don't know if it's going to be the right difference. I'm I'm getting the sense you feel it will be, they'll try something different as a reaction to the fact that they've tried something different and it didn't work and that's not necessarily the most considered course of action to take. And I think
2: there are egos at play. Look, the, the structure of a good governing body of a, of a proper functioning board is to put the checks and measures in so that whatever decision gets made <clears throat> is balanced, is justified and supports the agenda that's going to take the sport forward. I don't think they've got the right agenda to take, the, to take rowing forward. I don't think they properly critique and analyze strategies and decisions. And, and I, I, yeah, I, <laughs> I, I just don't even think they're facing in the right direction. I don't think they know what the right direction is. I think it's,
0: I just, uh, France is only 21 miles away, small expeditionary force. We can have Jurgen back in this country <laughs> within hours.
1: I mean, well, I, I, I was gonna, I was gonna literally ask, do you know if he sold his house? If, if he sold his house, <laughs> that's it, it's a done deal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Um, it will be, I, I, I think he's he's got an agreement with France and I would be, he's a man of honour. He's, not he's going an honourable man. man.
0: Yeah, sure. You know. You've raised a lot of very, very serious points there, Andy. And obviously, you know, we have a, a reputation for being scurrilous and, and flippant on this podcast. But just to come back on some of those points, we have had a relative failure at the Olympics and there's a lot of opinions flying around as to why and you've voiced some of them. The reviews in process, and if, you know, Andy and Brendan have already gone, it sounds like it's going to be pretty damn savage. Being serious for a moment, as a man who lives on the strawberry blonde borderline, was it really down to a lack of genuine gingers in our boats? Is that why we <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Oh, it's,
2: you know, Will Satch was the man who carried us across that line. He was our talisman, he was our strength. <laughs>
1: But okay, you've got to agree with me. There is something fundamental about gingers and rowing and cycling and British Olympic sport.
2: Hey, g- gingers have an inner power. You know, it's uh, maybe it's down to the years of bullying at school. Maybe <laughs> it-
0: <laughs> that's his theory. That is Lewin's theory because they've had to put up with so much. It makes them. It makes them tougher. A lot of people have been weighing in and, you know, obviously James Cracknell, God bless him and, and everyone who sails with him, you know, he's paid to write articles. He's paid to have an opinion. He actually came across it as very nuanced in, in some of them about ownership and, and personal accountability. Matthew Pinson got a lot of stick immediately after asking questions in kind of the final, I mean, Loon and I talked about it because you know, we're rowers, we talk about rowing and we put it down to, a lot of, a lot of different factors coming together. Jürgen being either allowed to go or pushed out by circumstance. We had a lot of seniors retiring after Rio at a relatively young and inexperienced squad. We had a new coaching approach. We had new selection, um, things coming in. We had the pandemic, which disrupted our usual process, but we still, we still made, I think it was eight finals and six fourth places. I mean, would you say it was a complex of things that, that came together? Uh, experience is a big thing. Um,
2: but we had experience. Um, I think the, you know, you take the scholars, the, the heavy men scholars, hmm. they were probably the most insulated as in they had, they retained the same coach, the same structure. They, um, built the whole training program as a mirror of what they think yoga would have done anyway. So in terms of what the scholars achieved, that's, that's pretty much where the team was. So if you look at their success and you extrapolate it to where the eight could have got, as it would have been Jürgen's boat, you'd bolt on a gold medal. I think, um, I, 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 I think had Jürgen been in place, I'm, I'm confident that they would have got a gold medal. And I say that because. Jürgen knew he selected that eight with one exception, Mr. Josh Bigowski. He was the only person who came into that eight after Jürgen left. Jürgen alone knew the triggers for that eight. He knew the psychology. He knew, he knew those, those people and those individuals better than anybody. And he knew what he needed to do and say at every moment through that last year towards Tokyo. Steve Trackmore's a great coach. You know, um what's his name? Um Robin Williams is a great coach. They're great technical coaches. They used the best um uh physiology program around, Jurgen's program, so they had the best physiological athletes. What they didn't have was the best psycho psychological psychology coach, which was Jurgen. And I would bet that Well, in my opinion, the psychology part is at least 50% of the rowing package, you can have the best technical, but it doesn't mean anything. If you can't bring a crew together, you know, you, 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 can even arguably have a weaker crew, but if you can nail the other two, they'll often be heavier crews mm. or, you know, um, stronger crews, the psychology part is the most important. And when they sacked Jürgen they sat, they they gave up that bit and Steve Trackmore would never have had the time to really understand why Jürgen selected that boat and the the triggers for that. And then even if he did, you know, the the whole process of of not having a chief coach, but having lead coaches, I mean, I guess that, that has less of an impact in the short term. I think in the long term, had Brendan still being around if, if that system, if, sorry, if, if if that system of having lead coaches and kind of a selection sort of panel-y thing and you know, that sort of devolved power, it, it will eat itself. It happened in Australia. It happened in Canada. It happened in America. Like there's plenty of models which demonstrate that, the performance program, the the system that Brendan was putting in place, guarantees you'll take a successful system to a non-successful system (laughs) every time. And this is the bit I I wish I'd been on the board at British Rowing, because that would be the question out of the past. You know, this has been done before, and it failed. So why are you doing it here? But they didn't. And um, so anyway, we'll see what happens for the next two and a half years. For Paris, um, unless they find their psychologist, their coach who is a psychologist who can properly understand the athletes, their triggers, their needs, what empathy they need, the whole package, then I I I I, I struggle to think how they will win
0: uh, a gold medal. Eric Murray, when he was on, talked about you you put you coaches have everything on a spreadsheet. A great coach is one who actually can understand the intangibles and and blend them because everyone's got the prognostics. That was his point. And Jürgen was the example. It's being able to blend all of these disparate characters. If that's Jürgen's strength, and I'm guessing that it is, his ability not just to understand the data, but to understand his athletes and, and blend them, surely the succession plan would have had in place someone, you know, almost sitting with him and learning how he does that because it's such a vital part of British success. (laughs) You've already mentioned Josh and we've invited him on to talk and it hasn't, (laughs) it it hasn't got back to us. Yeah. Look, there's been plenty of athletes who have had not good
2: things to say about Jürgen. They will usually be the ones who, um, either didn't, didn't feel they achieved their full potential under him because they weren't in his top boat, um, or I was they have an extraordinary degree of arrogance but however that's that's also credit to them because that's what you need to have to be a performance athlete you have to have be so single minded and 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 so confident um and actually is probably what would make those people the next Jurgen you know because mm. you you have to be of that of that elk and it's it's um Um, it, that's the world of performance sport. it's, it is very critical, you know, not everybody loved Jurgen, um, you know, the people outside of his system loved his results. And when they got to speak to him, they saw a very gentle, um, engaging, uh, person. But, uh, when you're in the system, it's tough. Um, and a lot of people, and by necessity, by necessity, you know, you you go for the England England football team. There's going to be hundreds of people who will think Gareth South Southgate is crap because he didn't select them or he didn't, they didn't think, well, he didn't get the best out of me. So I didn't perform. So I didn't get selected. So yeah, it's, it's not, it's not like he is adored within his close circles, but why wasn't succession planning? You can't succession plan in performance sport. It's just a rule. If you could then uh, Manchester United wouldn't have stopped winning. Um, Success follows certain people because they know how to make it. And you can't map it. Again, the experts (laughs) at Sports England spent way too much money trying to do that. You know, what's the secret to success? It's a fucking secret. (laughs) (laughs) You're not going to find out. Um, You know, even if you manage to sort of find just say you managed to find the perfect replacement who is going to emulate the success. You put him in place for a year with Jurgen. They'll be at each other's throats, and they would bugger off because those personality types that it takes to lead performance programs like that don't coexist. Right. You know. Yeah. If, if you're really good, you can get away with hiring yes people because that's all you can tolerate if you get someone who's going to really challenge you and your decision making, you know, I can't tell you why, you know, in Jürgen's mind, the best coaches say, I can't tell you why I'm going to select this person, but I'm going to select them because I know that that is what's going to win. And yet there's a, there's an amount they have to do to, to, to prove, etc. But at the end of the line, it comes down to the chief coach. who has got ultimate responsibility to be like, that's the person I want. And I can't tell you why it's just in here in my gut, in my heart. And I'm going to deselect this person for the same reason. And it's going to sting. And that person is going to hate me. And they may have won nine out of 10 trials, but there's something in me which says, and you know what? If that boat fails, I will die on my sword because that's the job. Mm. You know? Yeah. Jürgen did that all the time. That he kept winning. You cannot deny his his decision-making because odds on are that he's going to win with that decision. So when you get someone who is in that same position, that same strength of character, who would make a different decision, but because they know it's what they would do to win, you put those two people in the same room, they'll rip each other's throats out. So you cannot... You cannot have succession in performance rowing, in performance sport. What you can do is accept what is the right structure. You can, uh, uh, you can work damn hard to find the next person as quickly as possible, um, you have to accept a period of failure. You know, Mm. maybe that is what we're going through right now. You know, maybe Brendan was right all along. We'll actually never find out. Um but there's got to be this process where um where the next where the next Jurgen comes along. And there there are some fundamentals. The system has to empower the chief coach. That's just a fundamental. You can't change that. Um you have to find someone who is highly motivated and you know, all those bits. There's some sub key things, but it's it's a very, very tough job to replace. And it's it's certainly a very, very tough job to do in six oh, how long was it? Twelve months he was yeah. picked yeah. out from. That's not gonna happen. <laughs> That's the saving grace of Olympic programs. You've got four years to rebuild the system.
0: Yeah, not not the year that we took over it. So the the long and short of it is we shouldn't have let them go, and (laughs) and and that is basically it. And
2: yeah, well that 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 decision that that decision compromised the gold in Tokyo, and COVID potentially would have potential would would have potentially affected the obviously because it's only three years rebuilding a whole system in three years because Jurgen said like I'm not sure I can carry on after Tokyo. So, you know, there, there, there was a question mark always over Paris, but then you sort of, you build that into the plan. That's your conversation with UK sport and you build towards um, LA. You can definitely rebuild the programme within eight years. I'm so sorry for the athletes in in the A8 and the 4. I've got, I mean, the women's side, I have no idea. I think it's, you know, it's important to talk about what happened there because Jürgen shouldn't have been given the women's squad. That's just an absolute blinder you know if you want to overstretch and badly manage a a coach that's your best example you know he was really good with small squads Mm. he was he was stretched with big squads but having two big squads spreading too thin (laughs)
0: yeah
2: they uh they and they really suffered for that and then you know you look at their performance come the day and it was it was it was Yeah. It was very sad to see, but where they go from here, I think there's
0: a pretty big, pretty big challenge. Um, I know we've kept you up past your bedtime. (laughs) Um, And it's it's a fair point. Lewin is only just starting to get going at this time of the, of the evening. So just to kind of, I think, come back towards the kind of final questions. So you're now in, in with London Youth Throwing. What are your long-term goals for London Youth Throwing and yourself in you know both within the in the role and within the sport?
2: Well, uh first one is have a lot of fun. Um you know we are we, we get thousands of kids into the sport. Um I was up in Leeds on Thursday uh, Wednesday and um took a um help Rebecca uh who's the lead coach up there now take rowing into a school which <clears throat> is is one of those schools which has total you know they've really gone heavy on the on the discipline so the 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 students aren't allowed to talk when they're moving between classes it's that sort of edgy school you know give give them an inch they will take a mile and then some so you know they it's a really really you see you see a characteristic inner city school that's turned itself around and doing some really great stuff And yeah, to take rowing there, to see these kids, um, to have a bit of fun was brilliant. And my job is to inspire businesses, adults, to see that side of the sport, to actually witness what we're doing, the impact we're making. um, And then how we build life skills around it, how we build employment opportunities, how we We turn the start off in rowing into something much, much more important for those young people, which is sort of, I had a great fun in that session. And I learned apparently something about teamwork. And then that journey from that moment all the way through to, oh, wow. And that company's just shown me teamwork and they get paid a ton of money for it. That's amazing. I'm going to go do that. That moment where it clicks in their mind that they can have a career that they can have success and if they drive hard and work hard, and Lyr and Rowing can be the story from them going from unmotivated, undirectioned to focused on <clears throat> a great job and employment and 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 achieving, being successful. And that's fantastic. You know, I get to I get to tell companies about that. Um, I, it happened to me. Yes, uh, was it on, on on Thursday on the train? I, I caught the eye of a la- uh, of a lady. That sounds really dodgy. I caught the eye of um someone. Went, anyway, she, <laughs> um, it, it obviously I think she recognised me as Aurora. Um, and she tweeted me, and it turns out she works for this company, and they're like, "Well, we have a program that works just like that." You know, they would never have considered rowing as a vehicle to exercise their CSR program now they are because we kind of met on a platform um some guy called Andrew Green saw our local media up in Leeds because you know they 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 covered that session I was at and he's now look how can we help you know what do we do we we're finding roots we're finding people who want to invest in our sport and it's new money it's not money from old members and you know begging for donations this is significant amounts of new money coming in to support our sport to enable us to do more of it. That's winning <laughs> and it feels amazing. Um, so I am here to have fun. And so I create events like race, the Thames, Centurion challenge for more people to engage in the sport in a new way and have some fun, um, mix up with. Crazy, crazy rowers like spitfire, uh, Monmouth women who have a load of fun at our events and it's fantastic to see because they bring all the heat, all the energy. And then all these corporates who think rowing is just a stuffy world of sort of pompous posh people get their minds blown and they love it. And then they see what the money f- they fundraising does for those kids. And it's just this most epic journey um, of, yeah, for me, it's the, I, I'm just having, it's hard work, but I'm having the most fun. It's like being back here, back at Cavisham, you know, <laughs> you know, you just back in for the 16 K it's going to be a grind, but when we get there, it'll be good. Um, so yeah, no, it's, it's fantastic. Uh, so anyone out there who's listening to this race, the Thames, we're back up and running for January, end of January, oh, Okay, right. um, it's it's draining, man. a whole load of fun. Hey, look, the, the best thing I can recommend is you all get involved in the 72 K challenge. So in your team of eight. It's only 9K each. Obviously, the best way to do it is to split it up into 100 meter pieces. So, uh, you do what 90 of those in a day. Uh, you absolutely smash it. Um, and, uh, tell us what you can do. The, I think the Molsey Legends won it last year. I think they managed to do it in a split time of like 119. So, uh, they, uh, they, they, they took down, uh, I see who backed themselves they I think they came in at a one twenty one so um it was a lot of fun, but you know when when all when when we put that all together and uh and showed all these corporates what what rowing is really all about, we sort of lifted the lid off off this this great sport and uh so yeah, that's it. Having a lot of fun and if you want to support us not with any money, don't want your money. Uh, become an LYR champion. Just go onto our website, look through how you can support us and find sign up for an LYR champion. There's no cost, but if you just sign up, let us know you care. That that it gives us a huge boost. So we're just trying to build that population. You get a quarterly newsletter, we'll inspire you with some amazing stories, um, which will help you make you feel better about being a RURA. And then uh you'll help us by uh, by growing this community who uh who, uh, who were telling us they care. So that's it. Is, <laughs> in,
1: is, is Enjerk coming back?
2: Yes, Enjerk yes. is back at the copper box. So, um, yeah, that's our, uh, I mean, that's our, the national junior indoor rowing championships, the biggest indoor rowing junior rowing event in the world, I think just amazing event. Um, yeah, so that's back. That is the 4th of March. Cool. Um, we'll, we'll have an online offer as well along the side, but if you're close to London, um, and you can get to the copper box, it is an amazing atmosphere. It is absolutely fantastic. So, uh, cheapest chips, get down, have a load of fun, get to the Olympic, uh, Olympic park, get blown away by all the sites down there. Um, and then, uh, yeah. And just, just have a great time rowing. Um I'll be there. A load of my mates will be there. We'll be there with a ton of corporates doing the race of Thames Copper Box. Um so yeah, it'll be a lot of fun. Uh but yeah, check out NJ. It's gonna be uh it's gonna come back with a bang.
0: Andrew Triggs Hodge, yet again, you have been legendary. Thank you so much for sparing the time and staying up past your bedtime. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you again. We really appreciate no, it's it. Been
2: fantastic to be here. Thank you guys. And uh Yeah, keep the fires burning bright, eh?